The Bob Murphy Show, episode 200. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with Vijay Boyapati. Let me go ahead and read his bio that he sent me along. Born and raised in Australia, Vijay Boyapati moved to the United States in 2000 to pursue a PhD in computer science. Instead of enrolling in a doctoral program, Boyapati ended up at a small startup called Google, where he spent several years using his background in machine learning to improve the ranking algorithms used in Google News. Boyapati left his lucrative job in 2007 to work on a grassroots campaign in the 2008 presidential election, helping to raise millions of dollars and bring hundreds of volunteers to New Hampshire to canvas for Ron Paul. In 2011, Boyapati discovered Bitcoin and went down the proverbial rabbit hole in a quest to understand how a new form of internet money, backed by no commodity and guaranteed by no government, could have any economic value. Armed with a background in Austrian economics, Boyapati penned The Bullish Case for Bitcoin as a long-form article in 2017 to provide the layperson with an economic framework with which they could understand Bitcoin. Vijay Boyapati is a husband and father of three who lives in Seattle, Washington. So what we are talking about, and I've known Vijay for a while, this interview is going to be broken up into two parts. I mean, you'll get the whole thing, I'm saying, <laughs> though we, we focused on two main topics. The first is back in the day, right after QE started getting foisted upon the world following the 2008 financial crisis, when I and some other Austrian libertarian types were going around warning people like, uh-oh, the big one's coming. VJ was telling me, Bob, actually, I don't think we're going to see significant consumer price inflation, at least anytime soon. And he was telling me his reasons. And at the time, I didn't listen. And so, and then he, VJ went on to publish an article in the journal Libertarian Papers, where he made the case for why he thought that a credit deflation was the operative situation rather than just, oh, look at all this boatloads of money that Bernanke's pouring into the system. And so uh, that's what we talk about for a bit in the beginning of this interview. And then he's also, as his official bio there alluded to, the author of this long essay called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which I guess he wrote in 2017. The version I have is published on his Medium page in 2018. And it's a, it's a very interesting article, you know, besides just saying, hey, if you got into Bitcoin back then, you would have done well. Just going through why he thought Bitcoin really was going to be the, the money of the future. And uh, so it's really a, a good article to dive into. And we, we talk about that. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Vijay Boyapati. Well, Vijay, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. I have been looking forward to talking to you for a very, very long time. And, you know, doing the podcast is going to be a lot of fun. But, you know, just talking to you about Austrian economics and what's happened, I think it's been like almost 10 years since we talked. So there's a lot, lot of stuff has happened. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. 
Well, I appreciate that. I'm excited as well. So speaking of been a while, why don't we go back? This is the first thing I mentioned I wanted to talk to you about is certainly my worst professional mistake is that I made some public bets with people about how much CPI was going to go up such that if you go to my Wikipedia article, you would know when I was born that I don't like Paul Krugman and that I lost two bets on inflation. And actually I should mention to people, it's inaccurate. It said that I bet there'd be hyperinflation. I, I didn't. I said there'd be 10% year over year CPI, which was wrong, but I wasn't saying hyperinflation. So anyway, I don't remember, maybe you remember the details of VJ. I know you tried to kind of warn me personally, like early on, like, hey, Bob, you know, I don't think you should be sticking your neck out. I don't think there's going to be crazy price inflation or at least consumer price inflation, you know, just because of QE and stuff like that anytime soon. And I listened to your arguments and I thought you were wrong and I didn't listen to you. And so <laughs> then now, oops. So why don't we go ahead and I'll let you present that in general. Like, I'm just curious too, like from your perspective, like, did you see all the Austro-Libertarians saying, oh my God, oh my God, hyperinflation. And you're like, guys, what are you doing? So go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote uh, a paper. It was over a decade ago, actually. It was in 2010, it was published. But I think I had started thinking about those ideas in 2008 and nine when the Federal Reserve you know, very significantly in, increased its balance sheet. And, you know, a lot of Austrian economists at the time thought this is going to lead, uh, lead to major inflation. There was a number of, you know, prominent Austrians like um, Gary North and uh, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name, Rosoff, Rosef. Yeah, what, Ken? Is that his first name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of people... Oh, wait, no, there's, there's a mic too, and now I'm getting mixed up. Sorry, go ahead. I yeah, I, you know, there are a number of prominent Austrians who are making the case that there would be very substantial inflation. And and I, I, I thought this argument was wrong because it was based on a misunderstanding of how the banking system worked. And, you know, I'm an, I'm an Austrian myself. I, I very strongly subscribe to the Misian methodology of praxe praxeology. I think it's a, a, a brilliant foundation for, for building correct economic theory. But this methodology is a deductive approach. We, you know, you start with certain premises and then you, you deduce what comes from those premises. And it sort of starts with this very important axiom that humans act. We have purpose and we have means and ends and, and, and we use our scarce resources to try and attain those ends. And so what, what can we deduce from that? Now, the problem is if the axioms that you start from or the premises that you start from are incorrect, then you're going to end up with incorrect conclusions. And I really, I felt like the Austrians at the time who were suggesting that we were going to have hyperinflation had started with incorrect premises about the banking system. And it all kind of boils down to this theory that is subscribed to by both Austrians and neoclassical economists called the money multiplier theory. And it's a sort of theory of the causality of inflation, which is that inflation happens by banks lending money into the economy, and then that money circulates and it gets back into another bank and the, the bank relends and there's this multiplier effect where the, the sort of base money that's held at banks gets multiplied out many times over so that the total amount of money in, in the economy is much greater than the, the base money. Now, the, the, the causality posited by this theory is that the Fed will you know, produce more base money and it'll produce more reserves and then banks will lend these out up to a reserve requirement. So they'll lend out some amount of the reserves 
and, but they'll keep a fraction of the, the reserves, say so 10%, and they'll, they'll lend the rest out. And the, the causality of this theory is that the banks are kind of waiting. They're waiting around like they're, they're limited by the Fed. And um, the idea is that the, when the Fed increases reserves a lot, banks will just be like, oh, wow, we've got a bunch of reserves. We're going to lend them out. And, and that causes a lot of inflation. So Austrians at the time were really looking at the, the Fed's balance sheet and saying, wow, they expanded the balance sheet by, you know, I think it was $2 trillion in a very, very short period of time. And, and what, what does that mean? It means the Fed is creating money out of thin air and it's using it to buy assets in the economy. And typically they buy U.S. Treasury bonds, long-term U.S. Treasury bonds. And that's exactly what happened. They, they sort of stacked up their balance sheet with trillions of dollars of U.S. Treasury bonds. But when they buy those Treasury bonds, they're buying them from someone in the economy. And that someone says, oh, wow, I've got dollars now. These new dollars have been created by the Fed. And they deposit their dollars at a bank. And now the bank has banks have a lot more reserves. They have more base money that they can go and lend out. And so the, the causality, if you believe the money multiplier theory, is that, well, there's a lot more reserves out there. That means we're going to have a lot more inflation because banks are going to take them and they're going to lend them out. I thought that that theory was incorrect. And really, that started around early, or maybe late 2007, early 2008. And it really, I think, was solidified in my mind when I spoke to someone who worked at a bank, a bank executive who happens to be, you know, a very prominent Austrian that you know, we both know. Uh, and uh, I, I was at a, a conference uh, in on Jekyll Island with, I think, Ron Paul was hosting. And I remember being in this smoky back room with this executive, former bank executive, and, you know, asking him about how bank lending works. Like, what is the mechanics of bank lending? What's happening when a loan officer is making a loan? Are they looking at the bank's reserves and saying, do we have enough reserves? I don't think I can make this loan right now. And, and this bank executive said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works at all. That's not, that's not the causality of this at all. If you are a loan officer at a bank, you are not looking at the reserve position at the bank. You are making the loan regardless of what the reserve position of the bank is. And you're looking at, is this loan going to be profitable for the bank? You just make the loan. If the bank is short of reserves, what the bank will do is they'll go into the market and look to buy reserves. Or they could do something else, which is they could increase interest on deposits to try and attract you know, reserves into the bank. That's people making deposits uh, in the bank. So what happens is the causality is that banks go out and lend. They're lending just because they want to be profitable. They're not looking at their reserve position at all. And I, I, there's one extra thing I want to say about that, but I'll, I'll get back to about reserve requirements later. But banks are going out and lending. And if they become short on reserves, they will look for reserves to make more loans. And they'll go to the market and they'll purchase reserves from other banks. And this has the tendency to cause the price of reserves to go up, and which is the interest that you have to pay on reserves go up, goes up. And, and, and the Fed watches this and the Fed isn't really accommodating banks. So sorry, it's not um, leading banks, it's accommodating banks. It's looking that the demand is going up and then it accommodates them by producing more reserves if required uh, with their open market operations. So this is, this is kind of hard to you know, think about and tease out because both things are kind of happening at the same time. But the wrong model is that the banks are waiting, 
and then looking for reserves. The Fed gives more reserves, they go and lend it out. The correct model is the banks are lending however much they want and the Fed is accommodating or kind of trying to rein them in a little bit if they do open market operations, which make the the interest rate on um, purchasing reserves too high, then it becomes too costly to go and purchase reserves. It's not worth making the loans, which sort of slows down the loan process. So if you think about who is the dog and who is the tail, the, the, the sort of classical model is that the Federal Reserve is the dog and the banking system is the tail and the Federal Reserve is wagging the tail. But really, the correct model to think about this is that the banking system is the dog and the Federal Reserve is the tail, is generally following what the banks are doing rather than reining in the dog or you know giving the, the dog a shove. The other thing I would, would say is that this theory about reserve requirements, I, 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 part of the reason I had a big problem with it was that the effective reserve requirement for banks had been zero since the mid-90s because they the, there was this program that was created in, I think, 1994, which allowed banks to sweep money from checking accounts to savings accounts on a daily basis. And this may sound strange. Why do they do this? The reason they did this is because the savings accounts had no reserve requirement and the banks were able to lend out of those savings accounts the entire amount without any reserve requirement. And actually, Ben Bernanke talked about this many years later. And he said, you know, we're just, we're just going to get rid of this. And I wrote about this in my paper a decade ago. I have a quote from Bernanke. He said, we're just going to get rid of this reserve requirement thing. It's just antiquated. No one really uses it. It's, why do we have it here? And actually, subsequently, since my paper was written, they have removed the reserve requirement. I think that happened um, a few years ago. So the way the Fed you know, tries to control the lending in the banking system isn't through reserves. That's a really sort of old antiquated system that's perhaps had some power in the 70s, but doesn't anymore. The way they do it is through capital uh, requirements, requiring banks to have a certain amount of capital, which means that when they're lending and they lend profitably, the nominal value of the assets that they've lent uh, versus what they paid for them is the amount of capital that they have, the, the amount they've sort of nominally uh, earned through successful investing. And, and what the what the Federal Reserve the way they'll try and control the banks is to say you need to have some capital buffer so that if in case these assets start shrinking in value, you're not going to be insolvent. Uh, so so the Federal Reserve is really concerned about the, the banking system becoming insolvent. Um, so this is, you know, I've kind of given you a brain dump, but to, to summarize, I think the key point is that I really thought there was a, a flaw in one of the premises and if you change that premise and you apply the Austrian method, I think you come to different conclusions. And I, I came to the conclusion that we're very unlikely to see large-scale inflation. We're much more likely to see a prolonged period of low or perhaps even decreasing prices, sort of similar to what happened in Japan. And, and what I called that was a controlled deflation. Because, you know, both, both of us as Austrians are familiar with business cycle theory and, and what happens when the Fed sort of spurs uh, bank lending through holding the interest rates lower than the market interest rate is that banks will go out and misallocate a ton of capital. And that's what happened in the, the, the financial crisis. They had 
invested in all sorts of um, loans to people who couldn't afford the loans. You know, there were people on minimum wage buying houses for $500,000 and they obviously couldn't service that debt. So there's a huge misallocation of capital. That capital has to be reallocated and losses have to be recognized by someone. Now, what, what a controlled deflation is, sorry, I should probably stop and say, what, what an uncontrolled deflation is if the Fed just says, okay, there was a there was a business cycle, there's a lot of misallocation of capital, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to step back and let it clear, let the, the losses clear. A lot of banks are going to go out of business. A lot of people are going to get lose their jobs. And over time, they'll you know figure out better jobs, more productive jobs, which are sort of fit with the the economic structure of uh, you know the U.S. economy. Uh, that's what would happen if the Fed didn't do anything. But instead, they're doing kind of a controlled deflation, which is they didn't want this uncontrolled liquidation of all of these bad loans. So they would buy up all of these loans, which were bad loans, and hold them on their balance sheet and hope that the market kind of came back slowly or recovered slowly and let the losses happen over a long period of time instead of very quickly. That's at least the conclusion that I came to in 2010 for what was going to happen. And I think that that is actually generally how it played out. The, the market took several years to clear the losses from, from the housing sector. I mean, it was many, many years before the housing market recovered and started you know, uh, increasing in value. So, uh, yeah, I, I call it a controlled deflation, and I think that's what happened. And I think if you, you know, apply the Austrian methodology to the premise that the banking system is the one driving rates and the Fed is following the banking system, that those are the conclusions that you'd come to. Okay, great. So, yeah, let me, and I I mentioned to you, Vijay, offline that I had reread your your paper, you know, the one you're alluding to here. And yeah, your conclusions were much more accurate because back when I was, you know, sort of debating with you and then also with uh, Mish, you know, him. So he also was saying, oh, the problem you, you know, some of you Austrians are making, guys like Peter Schiff too or whatever, who are warning about, you know, soaring commodity prices and this is going to feed into regular consumer goods and go buy all your stuff now while you can before the dollar collapses, that kind of stuff. He was also saying you're just focusing on money, but it's money and credit. And so I kind of lumped you guys together at the time. And he was calling for outright falling prices, like significantly. Like he thought, oh no, there's a black hole here in the credit markets. I don't care how much Bernanke prints, that's just going to get sucked into it. And so since in retrospect, CPI, although it didn't rise as much as I had thought, still rose modestly. I thought, okay, well, Mish missed it too. And I kind of had lumped you in, but let me just for the listeners read, because you weren't necessarily saying that. So this is the last paragraph from your paper. And so I'll, just so you know, Vijay, I'm going to come and quibble with some of your reasoning, but I do want to, like, I think the strongest thing you can say for your own case is, well, my prediction <laughs> was certainly correct more than this guy Murphy's. So here's <laughs> the final paragraph from your paper. While the Federal Reserve has the theoretical power to force the resumption and credit expansion by monetizing enough public debt that the losses from the housing bust were wiped away, it is unlikely to do so. The Fed was created for the benefit of the banking class, and while it remains under the control of that class, it will not pursue a policy that would lead to a breakdown in the monetary system from which the banking class profits. However, the Fed is also unlikely to allow an untrammeled deflation to run its full course, given the risk of political unrest that might that might arise. 
Therefore, the Federal Reserve's most likely course of action is to keep the mortgage market, in which most of the losses are concentrated, in a sort of stasis where losses are acknowledged slowly over time. Such a policy, which might well be called control deflation, would lead to a prolonged period of high unemployment and slow growth as capital was only slowly reallocated to satisfy consumer preferences. Further, the insufficient or barely sufficient creation of new credit to make up for debt paid down or defaulted on would cause a low growth in aggregate prices, which might occasionally become negative. So that was the key sentence there, VJ, is that you are not predicting, you know, falling prices for the next five years at the time, which which I think some of the deflation camp was. And so that's right. why when I read this last night, I was like, oh, wow, VJ really did nail this. In terms of the and they did prices about, prices yeah. did occasionally go negative. There were a few periods in that you know two thousand nine to two thousand twelve where prices dipped at least certainly for an, you know a number of goods that you wouldn't expect. I mean, you always expect that you, mm-hmm. um, electronics are going to go down in price because of productivity, but there were certainly dips in prices, even in regular consumer goods as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like overall CPI, like that did actually drop in late two thousand eight for at least, right. what, like the, I think, the fourth quarter. But yeah, then right. after that, like it, it bottomed out and then was rising tepidly. Right. Um, and then the, just to round out your quote here, uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Not until the losses of the housing boom are fully cleared, which might take years under a policy of controlled deflation, should we expect an inflationary credit expansion and a significant rise in prices. Okay, so like I say, that was, you know, in terms of your predictions about what, we would see in some of these broad aggregates and consumer price measures and whatnot was was spot on. So let me just circle back and quibble with some of your reasoning because my joke to you over email was, let's revisit that debate. So you certainly were right in the argument, but let's see if you were right for the right reasons or did you just get lucky? <laughs> um, so what, what am, and because I can remember why, you know, I listened to what you said at the time, but why I didn't think what you were saying was the full story is, so one thing is, for example, I think some people listening to what you said would would conclude and say, oh yeah, so like money in the hands of the public probably was flat from 2008, 2009, 2010 because yeah, the Bernanke's pumping in all these reserves but the banks are just sitting on it because their balance sheets were all screwy and they didn't have good loan opportunities. So it was all bottled up in the system. And that's, I mean, like looking at M1, for example, which I'm looking at right here, that was flat going into 2008. But then in, starting in August of 2008, M1 started rising you know, at the most rapid clip, and it did that for years. Okay, and, and M1 being a measure um, for the folks at home, it's that includes actual currency in the public's pocket and also checking account balances. So, you know, whatever else may be going on in terms of credit creation and the banks being reluctant, and, and certainly, yes, excess reserves went through the roof. And so that's partly to explain how come gasoline didn't become $20 a gallon, even though you could see the charts of you know, the monetary base and stuff like that, what the Fed was pumping in at the front end. Still, money broadly held by the public went up significantly. And so, you know, I would say the explanation is the demand to hold money went up too. But to me, that's a different thing from saying like, oh, this the money multiplier theory is wrong or that the money was just all bottled up in the banks. So I don't yeah, know, do you have I- any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's um, multiple things going on. Firstly, I agree with you. The demand for money went up. Certainly, there was a big spike in the demand for money. That did decrease pretty markedly, you know, over the next couple of years when the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates to zero. You know, that holding money was kind of painful, right? You're not getting any return on your money in the bank. 
The other thing is that the base money certainly increased. That we, I think we both agree on. But I think the inflationary effect, at least from my perspective, happens when banks lend into the economies, the multiplying effect. I, I don't sort of disagree with the multiplier theory in, in terms of lending into the economy causing inflation. I disagree with the causality of what drives banks to lend and what stops banks from lending. That's kind of where I disagree. But so if we agree that it's really the, the majority of inflation comes from lending into the economy, two big factors are that, you know, people didn't want to take loans anymore. I mean, it's kind of like if you imagine credit is a drug like heroin, you're giving it out, you're giving it out, but eventually the person you're giving out to ODs and they just, they can't take anymore. You, can, you can't give more of it to them, they'll just die. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of, part of it is the, the economy just OD'd on on um, uh, credit and people just, there, there weren't profitable opportunities anymore for banks to lend. The other side of the coin is that the banks were so impaired uh, by the bad loans that they had. I mean, the Fed tried to take a lot of these loans off the bank's balance sheets and, and buy those loans so that the banks wouldn't be so impaired. But there were still a lot of losses that the banks had to acknowledge. They were impaired in that sense. And the third factor is regulatory. The regulations for standards for loans went up dramatically. Like there were people getting, like I said before, there were people getting loans who just had the minimum wage, getting like $500,000 or $1 million loans. The loan standards dramatically became dramatically stricter after 2008. Congress passed mm-hmm. a bunch of laws. And so if you wanted to get a loan, you couldn't go to the bank and say, There's, I'm not going to put any deposit down, just give me the loan. Um, there was these, what were they called? Ninja loans, no income, no job, so, something Application. like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. And people were getting these loans. Yeah. And they also but, had what they call liar loans too, where everybody involved knew full well, this guy's just making up income and stuff, but who cares? Because the housing market's booming and we'll, you know, we're, we're not going to get stuck with this thing. We'll repackage it and sell it to Wall Street. Absolutely. Credit standards were absolutely abysmal in, in the housing boom. Uh, and and what that means is when credit standards are low, a lot of loans get made that shouldn't be made. But after 2008, with the you know passing of various regulations, credit standards went up and banks started saying, you need to put 20% down. And you're in the middle of like a depression, right? A mm-hmm. major economic collapse, and people don't have twenty percent to put down. Uh, they don't. They don't necessarily have the capacity to take a loan because they don't have a job, and they don't have the extra cash free that they can use to to take a job. So, I think it's two factors. I think at least initially, I completely agree with you. The demand for cash skyrocketed. It went through the roof. People were just. That's the fear stage of a uh, of a, a recession where it's a liquidity crunch and people just want cash to be able to like survive day to day. And so the savings rate went from like somewhat negative, I think, which is kind of funny. People have like negative savings in the US to like very positive. People were saving like 10 or 15% of their income. So the demand for cash went up, that's correct. But I think also uh, the desire to make loans dropped significantly and the uh, standards for making loans increased significantly. So the total amount of money that was being lent into the economy slowed a lot. So that, that that's kind of partly the explanation for why, um, you know, there was this massive pile of reserves created and you're saying part of the explanation is demand for money. I think the other side is that people who had the reserves didn't want to loan or couldn't loan or couldn't find loans. So it was, it's both sides which were important. Yeah, sure. And, and again, to be clear with my 
what I was saying is just, yes, a large part of, and, and this is what I was thinking at the time too, certainly if you know, Bernanke kicks in $2 trillion and then if the banks go lend 10 times that, that's an extra $20 trillion floating around the system. Right. And that didn't happen for the reasons you're citing. But my point was just there is more money floating around, even in the hands of the public, just because they threw so much at it that some got through. It, it might have even just been literally printing currency and stuff too, like people withdrawing cash from banks and whatever. And so- Well, well that's okay. I, I want to make a point about that because I yeah. think what's happening today or what happened last year in particular is very, very different to what happened to uh, 2008, 2009. Okay. Quantitative easing is not the same as Bernanke's like helicopter drop of money where you, they just the Federal Reserve gets a helicopter, they put a bunch of cash in, they just drop it from the sky and people mm -hmm. are like, wow, I've got free money, I'm going to spend it. Quantitative easing is buying assets in the economy and that money goes into bank reserves. And if the reserves are lent out, sure, that's inflationary. But if they're not lent out, then it's it's not going to be inflationary. But what's happening now, what happened in 2020, is much, much more inflationary. This is a this is the equivalent of, of dropping helicopter money from the sky by giving these stimulus checks to, you know, tens of millions of people around the country, they're literally giving them cash. That cash is going to get into the economy very quickly. It's going to be consumed. And that is going to be much more likely to have an inflationary effect on the economy. And I think I am much more concerned about inflation today than I was 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And that is interesting too, that, you know, I'm glad you brought up that distinction because yeah, a lot of mainstream analysts now too, more and more, you know, JP Morgan, blah, blah, blah are warning about one of the funny phrases was transitory hyperinflation, which I wonder if that was a typo, but it seems like <laughs> hyperinflation is not transitory. But in any event that, yeah, like, so they're not saying the sky is flying, but they are warning people about there could be this one shot adjustment now as, you know, we're resuming to full output and all the money that's sloshed around the system. So whereas a lot of those analysts were more sober back in 2009, 2010, and it was more just like zero hedge and people like me that were, you know, more concerned at the time. So, so yes, if, if large scale price inflation hits in 2021, 2022, that actually won't be very surprising because even mainstream analysts are now saying that people who were not, you know, chicken littles back in 2010. So why don't we hit one thing too you, quickly, you mentioned the, the reserve requirements. So yeah, they actually, they may have gotten authorization to do it earlier, but they actually put that through, it was, it was I'm, I was looking at, I'm writing something for the Mises Institute, which is why I know this. It was March 15th, 2020. So it oh, was, okay. a, it was, it was a Sunday, you know, this is right when the, you know, coronavirus stuff, if people remember the timeline. So mid-March, it was a Sunday and the Fed had an emergency, you know, federal open market committee thing on a Sunday and the press release was out and it's, and it alluded to it and said, there's also some new measures for easing the flow of credit to households and refer to, you know, the attached note if you want to see what that is. So they didn't, the, the regular press release didn't mention it. If you go click the attachment, it listed a bunch of stuff like commercial paper funding facilities, blah, blah. And then the last thing it mentioned was, oh, and by the way, there's no more reserve requirements on banks effective March 26th. Have a good, nice day. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I wouldn't fault them for that. Sometimes people think of those things in conspiratorial terms, like they're, mm -hmm. they're hiding something important, you know, in this, like, in the small print. But I actually think it is the small print because I don't think if there were, effectively speaking, there weren't reserve requirements since about the mid-'90s. So it kind of surprised me it took them that long to say, hey, we're not even really regulating the banks in this way, so why do we have this? 
So yeah, I, I thought it was a few years earlier, but yeah, I, I remember it happening and thinking, oh yeah, they finally did it. <laughs> okay, so that's what I wanted to ask you is in your mind, that really is a nothing burger because effectively those reserve requirements, you don't think posed a constraint one way or the other. Exactly right. Okay, okay. What was interesting though is even in the note, and you could just explain this by saying, well, they're trying to make it look like it was a good thing, is they say this should also ease the flow of credit to households. So it's kind of like, well, if it's not a constraint, then what, why would removing it allow the flow of credit more easily? But you could just say, yeah, they had, they had to justify it really. It's just a stupid. Yeah. I mean, they have to justify everything they do. So right. <laughs> they may have just given a boilerplate explanation. Okay. So what will, if, if you don't mind, let, let me hit one more substantive thing from this. And then I want to move on to your, your Bitcoin stuff. So, so, so yeah, I really do like, you know, arguing and, I didn't check with the guy. I think, let's not even give hints as to who it is, but I think I talked to the same person you're talking about. And he said something to me like, yeah, he said, on all the loan meetings I was ever in, nobody ever said, hey, how many excess reserves do we have? Can we make, <laughs> he said that would never came up. Right. But having said that, and, and folks, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 200. I'll have links to all VJ stuff, but also some of my stuff that I'm alluding to. I walked through this VJ. I'm just curious if you want to get your reaction to this. So for the Mises Institute, I have this thing called Understanding Money Mechanics. And one of the later chapters is to say, I think the title is something like, does the textbook explanation of money creation and bank lending get things backwards? And so, and I, and I go through and I quote, there was, it was like the Bank of England or it, it was somebody from the, something from the UK, it might not have been the Bank of England, but it actually had, it was some prominent outlet that the authors did this thing. And yeah, they were arguing the standard money multiplier model that's in the classic textbooks. That's all wrong. If anything, it's backwards that yes, banks make loans based on profitability. And then if they need reserves, they go get them kind of thing. Right. So yeah, here's- Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Bob. I just, just want to say, this is understandably difficult to understand um, mm -hmm. because it's one of those things where you have two causalities playing out kind of at the same time and they're intertwined. So it's very hard to kind of tease out because like if the banks, you know, want reserves, they need more reserves and they're starting to bid them up and the, the, the natural rate is going up. The Fed generally follows them. And you can, there's a way you can see this. You can look at the, um, the short-term treasury interest rate, which is kind of the market rate and the Fed mm -hmm. funds rate, which the, mm -hmm. the Fed funds rate is basically controlled by the Fed. They're in there like, you know, manipulating that rate by creating or removing reserves. Mm -hmm. And the Fed funds rate basically tracks the uh, short-term treasury rate. And that's kind of a way of saying the Fed is following the market. There may be instances where it, it leads the market, where it's trying to like kickstart the market in a way. Like in, in a recession, the, the short-term treasury rate will drop very quickly. And that's what happened in mm. 2008. The short-term treasury rate went to zero. And if the Fed wants to be really aggressive, they'll get under it. They'll bring the Fed funds rate under the short-term treasury rate, which it gives the banks a very uh, easy, risk-free lending opportunity, lending to the US government to collect you know, a small amount of profit. But in general, if you look at these charts, the Fed fund rate follows the market rate, the, the mm -hmm. short-term tre treasury rate. So you, if you're looking at which sort of 
direction the causality goes, almost always it goes in the Fed following the banking system rather than the other way. But because because the two things interact with each other, it's very hard to tease out. And, you know, in the world, there are sometimes these causalities which interact in this way, and it can be hard to reason about, like, which side is causing the other? And sometimes, you know, side A causes B, but then sometimes side B causes side A. So I, I, I don't fault people for getting this wrong because it, it's not at all obvious. Right. Just to give people an example, like uh, if the government announced that, I don't know, starting next year, any new champagne bottle or any new wine bottles produced would be confiscated, that would make the price of grapes right now crash. And so if you looked at graphs of wine prices and grape prices, you might say, oh, it turns out, you know, the classical economists were right that the cost of production dropped first and then later the price of when you would know that, no, we're looking ahead to see what's going to happen in that. So, Right. Um, but yeah, on this point, so the way I handled it in the text, you know, in this, the thing I wrote up for the Mises Institute was I said, yes, it is true that it's more sophisticated or more nuanced than people say. And so, yes, if, if banks do, you know, see profitable lending opportunities and they go ahead and they make the loan and then they check and, uh oh, because we made those new loans right now, our actual reserves on hand are lower than our required reserves. So just legally speaking, we have to go get, more reserves. And so they go into the re- the federal funds market, which is the market for, you know, overnight banks lend reserves to each other. And other things equal, that's going to push up the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate on those loans. So if the Fed has a target in place and says, oh, right now our target, given our outlook on unemployment and inflation is a Fed funds rate of whatever, 3.2%. And then because the banks are clamoring because there's profitable loan opportunities and they're trying to borrow reserves from each other and there's only a fixed number of reserves that's going to push up. And and so the Fed funds rate goes up to 3.5%. The Fed seeing that, if they want to maintain what their target was, the last FMC meeting when they told, you know, the Wall Street Journal and stuff, here's what our target is, to maintain that they will have to then buy more assets and pump more reserves into the system to push down the Fed funds rate back to whatever their target was. And so that's the sense in which you could say it's the banks driving the Fed. But on the other hand, it still is true that the banking system can't create reserves. And yes. so to say an individual bank doesn't care about reserves, you know, it's kind of like saying, I don't care how much crude oil there is when I put gas in my car. And yeah, that's true, but it would be wrong to say, so this model that gasoline comes from crude oil is crazy. No, ask any motorist. He doesn't care about crude oil. That's stupid. He's, that would be goofy too. So yeah, it is yeah, kind yeah, of- you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The Fed is ultimately responsible for the creation of reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, historically, you should also go back and realize, you know, the Fed isn't this separate entity from the banking system. The, mm-hmm. the Fed was literally created- for the benefit of the banking right, system, right. created by the banking system for the benefit of the banking system. And so it's not surprising that it it accommodates the banking system when the banking system needs more reserves. Yeah, actually, I lied. I do want to give you time to talk on that one last aspect of your paper, which I thought was fascinating, was you were, you were laying out like, yes, hypothetically in terms of the policy levers and whatever. Yeah, the Federal Reserve, if it wanted to, could just buy so many assets and dump so much money into the system that it would overwhelm these other things you're talking about. And you see, and there are historical examples of hyperinflation and stuff, but you pointed out in those historical examples, it was like the populists had taken, you know, working through the treasury had sort of taken control. It was not the bankers in charge of it. And you were saying since the Fed right now is, I mean, it's literally owned by the banks and 
you know, it has this, you know, they've really done a good job of telling everybody it's important that we maintain our independence from the treasury that you were saying at the time and which turned out to be correct. You didn't think in terms of the vying over the powers of fed policy that you didn't think it was going to be the case that, uh, that the the populist, you know, sort of green backer approach would win out. You thought it was going to be the conservative, hey, let's watch the value of the dollar and and so on. But I mean, by the way, let's get rid of these so-called toxic assets because we, you know, we don't want to suffer losses because we're the bankers, but let's not just pump a bunch of money in this system. And I think too, that also explains some of the, uh, like, the, do you know the, the market monetarists? Do you know who those guys are, VJ? Like, no, like they, they, they favor NGDP targeting and stuff, guys like oh. Scott Sumner. So anyway- they were flummoxed. They were like, I don't get it. Why would the bank in 2008, you know, in October start paying interest on reserves when that's, you know, contractionary at the same time? And to me, it made perfect sense that, yeah, what this was a policy for the bankers, that they wanted the Fed to go ahead and buy mortgage-backed security, you know, the toxic assets and whatever, take them off their books, save that market to stop the fire sales and the, you know, in terms of the credit markets to save the banking system. But they didn't want, to crash the dollar. And so they, at the same time, they were telling everyone, hey, we're just doing this to keep credit flowing to Main Street. One way of looking at that policy of interest and reserves is the Fed started paying banks to not make loans to the public. Like that's literally what they were doing. There's no, you keep your reserves parked here and we'll pay you for it now, which was a brand new policy implemented in October of 2008. So to me, it made perfect sense. The only mystery was if you believed what Bernanke and Paulson and stuff were telling the public about why they were doing these things. Like, oh, no, this is just keep credit flowing to Main Street. No, it wasn't. Yeah, and also, you know, I mean, when you think about that, it's one of the great crimes of the last decade, I think, because what what the Federal Reserve was doing, essentially, by paying interest on reserves is that these reserves were sitting in the banks and the Federal Reserve's paying interest on them to the banks. They were making money on reserves that had been created by the Fed and they were using uh, that interest to sort of recapitalize themselves because they had made all these mm-hmm. terrible loans and had all these losses on their books. And so they were printing money out of thin air, giving it to the banks to sort of prevent them from collapsing, which they, they should have done. Uh, you know, you're talking about the part of my article, which is a class theory. You know, Karl Marx had a class theory about, you know, the proletariat and, and the bourgeoisie and uh, capitalists and, and things like that. I think a much more important class theory is the one I, I presented in my article. It's, it's probably the thing I'm most proud about, about the article. The, the class theory I think really matters is who is in control of the money supply? Is it the banking class or is it the political class? And my view is that you don't see hyperinflations unless it's the political class that's in, in charge of the money supply. And you look at hyperinflations in history in places like Zimbabwe or the Weimar Republic, they always happened when the political class had very direct control over the creation of money. Uh, and and uh, th- there's this quote I have in the article about the um, the head of the the central bank in the, the, the Weimar period saying that we're, re- we're here and ready to accommodate whatever the, the needs of the state are. Mm-hmm. And the person who had been appointed as head of their central bank was appointed by the the head of state at the time. So there's a very direct link from the the political class to to the banking class. Whereas in the US, the Federal Reserve is 
is kind of viewed as sacrosanct, that it's this independent body that can do what it wants. Mm-hmm. And the, the, bank, the banking class certainly won itself a, a huge privilege in being able to, to do that and also to, to convince the public at large that this is a beneficial thing to create this system which benefits them. But, uh, yeah, so that was one of the key factors for me thinking about, well, are they, they do have the theoretical power. The Federal Reserve has a theoretical power to blow away all debt and create enough money. But will they use that power? No, they're not going to destroy the system which their clients benefit from because the banking system sort of parasitically profits from the economy as a whole by, by you know, this senior ridge that they have. But if you're if they're like a mosquito on an elephant, they don't want the elephant to die. <laughs> right. They, they want they they want the elephant to, to be healthy and suck blood from the elephant over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the class theory, I think, was um, you know a, a big part of my reasoning for why I didn't think there would be hyperinflation in the U.S. Contrary to what you know, a number of prominent Austrians thought in 2008. And I know you didn't say that there would be hyperinflation, but I, a number of Austrians did say that, or something close to that. Right. Yeah. And I actually on some of I was sort of trying to warn people and say, look, guys, even if with this QE, even if they did the money multiplier, that's still not hyperinflation. It's just bad. You know what I mean? Like hyperinflation, those like, you know, million times increase in the price level, the course of a year, that kind of stuff. So a good example of what you were just alluding to there, VJ, where in the US, the bankers have done a good job of really building up. It's important that the Fed is independent is, I don't know if this was on your radar, but just the other day, Janet Yellen was, you know, given a boilerplate talk somewhere and said something like, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if price inflationary pressures kick in, you know, the, the rates, interest rates might have to rise down the road and people flipped out saying, whoa, you're in the treasury now. You can't be telling Powell what to do. That's his prerogative. And she kind of walked it back. And, and so it was, what I thought was just funny is how she just basically lied about what she said, you know what I mean? Instead of just saying, yeah, what I said was totally common. What are you talking about? Instead, kind of trying to change. No, no, I wasn't saying, you know. But yeah, it's but a still, huge, it, in it's and a, of itself, all she was saying was a basic thing. She actually wasn't saying, I want the Fed to do such and such. She was just kind of saying, well, yeah, normally if price starts rising, the Fed hikes rates. That's what happens. Yeah, it's this huge political shibboleth in uh, U.S. politics that you shouldn't tell the Fed what to do. Uh, you know, there are, there are various things that you're not, you're not supposed to do or not supposed to talk about. Like, I mean, in another example is like stacking the Supreme Court. That's generally right, right. View, viewed, you know, it's a, very, it's a very unpopular thing to suggest to do because it's long tradition of Supreme Court is independent and if you mm-hmm. stack it, then it becomes a political body. So the same thing is true of the Federal Reserve and it's kind of ingrained almost into American culture that this uh, institution should be independent. And, and if it is independent, then probably it's not going to do something that's going to kill itself. Right, right. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to once again mention that the more you give, the more you get. I really appreciate all the contributions you folks have been sending and uh, feel free to do more. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to send more or to do it for the first time. If you're squeamish, it's really not that hard. You can do it. Also, for those of you who can't contribute financially, what you can do instead of that is anytime I have an episode that you think might be something your friends or coworkers would want to listen to or even just to challenge them, go ahead and send it along. That's the way we grow. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now let's get back to the show. Okay, so we don't have too much time left. So I I do want to switch over. The original reason was people were sending me your article from, 
This is, looks like you originally 18. put it in March 2018 called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. So I'll link to this, folks. It's a really good article. And again, <laughs> thus far, VJ nailed it. If He's writing about the bullish case for Bitcoin back in 2018. But um, besides just the, the general prediction of movements, I did want to get into, let's see. So you had a nice thing where you're contrasting Bitcoin and gold and fiat currencies in terms of some attributes like durability, portable, fungible, verifiable, divisible, scarce, established history, censorship resistant, and you give them grades. So do you want to comment on that aspect? Because you weren't just a pure Bitcoin fanboy. You were acknowledging there are some dimensions in which you know gold is superior than Bitcoin, at least at the moment. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that element of it? Yeah, so just to give a bit, bit of history here, I came across Bitcoin in 2011 and I pretty quickly figured out, okay, this is a monetary phenomenon. This is a monetary good. Honestly, it's been created out of thin air by this sort of pseudonymous figure called Satoshi Nakamoto. And this to me was like one of the most fascinating economic questions. And it's almost a, you know, a question I have for you. Maybe we can sort of briefly talk about it. I was astounded and still am astounded that the Austrian community as a whole, which I believe has the best tools to understand something like Bitcoin, has largely been uninterested in what I think is the most important monetary phenomena or monetary innovation in, in a thousand years. This is money uh, that's been created out of thin air, which you know many thought was impossible, that has a market price and an increasing market price. Absolutely fascinating. Even if you're not interested in investing in Bitcoin, it's a, just a, astounding. I think most Austrians, if you would ask them in 2007, if someone creates something on the internet uh, using an algorithm, uh, using some cryptography, uh, is that going to be worth anything? Is it, could it be worth a trillion dollars? I think most assuredly, the vast majority of Austrians would have said absolutely not. That is nonsense. I mean, it, that, you, the Mises and um, Rothbard had talked a bit about, you know, if people issue money on their own, they issue their own money, it's just not going to be worth anything because no one's going to take it. You can, uh, Rothbard ha has this article, I think it may have been in What Has Government Done to Our Money? Like if you, if someone person issues Hayek's, he always liked to, mm -hmm. you, you know, right. um, make fun of Hayek. He wasn't the biggest fan of Hayek. If one person issues Hayek's and I issue Rothbard's, you know, it's not going to be worth any anything because anyone can issue them. So, you know, with that background, I, I was absolutely fascinated with Bitcoin and like, how, how does this thing have a market price at all? How does it have a non-zero price? And if it has a non-zero price and it seems to be increasing, why is that? What, what is it about Bitcoin that could potentially make it money? Or is it even possible that it could become money? And this really led me down an economic rabbit hole. And I, I, I felt... This was an area, and I don't want to be controversial and I don't want to insult anyone, but I felt it was an area that Austrians are really lacking in. And uh, while the Austrians have, I believe, the correct methodology to understand something like Bitcoin, I don't think it has been applied properly. And there were a few figures who weren't that well-known, like Conrad Graf and Peter Serta, who had you know, written a little bit about it. But really, it wasn't taken up by the Austrian community. It wasn't like whoa, this is a once in a thousand year event. Someone just created money out of nowhere and it has value on the market and it's is, uh, increasing in value and people seem to trust it. How is that possible? 
And so I, I, I went down this rabbit hole and I, I started thinking, okay, what is it that makes Bitcoin have value versus something else? Why would I want to hold it instead of dollars? Why, why would I want to hold it in, in, instead of gold? And I, it was very apparent to me why I might want to hold it in, instead of gold. Uh, and I have this story I like to tell, which is when I was a kid, uh, my mom got sick and my dad was worried about her and thought, you know, she might pass away. Thankfully, uh, she recovered and is doing great. But he sold all of his assets in Australia. I grew up in Australia and he, he sold them to gold. He converted everything he had to gold, a bag of gold, because he wanted to take his kids, my sister and I, back to India because he had, you know, a support structure family and so on. Mm-hmm. But at the time, in the, the early 90s, India didn't really have a banking system worth talking about. So there's no easy way to transfer his wealth from Australia back to India. So what do you do? You, you, gold is valued in India. So you sell everything, get a bag of gold and carry it to India. And I vividly remember being on a plane with my dad and how just terrified and stressed out he was, like holding his savings in a bag. Anyone could have robbed him and taken everything. Mm-hmm. And when you get to India, you have to go through customs and they're, they're incredibly corrupt. Anyone in customs could, you know, snatch the bag and say, well, this is illegal. We're going to take this from right, you. Or you're a drug dealer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a drug dealer or something like that. And so I very quickly understood because of that experience what, what a comparative advantage of Bitcoin is. It's portable wealth. It's like gold. It has the properties that make gold good as a, uh, as money, but it has this extra property that you can magically teleport it anywhere on earth. Imagine if you could teleport your gold, how mm-hmm. powerful that that would be. It would be incredibly powerful. You can't do that with gold. And I, I understood that. And so that made me think, okay, what are the... What are, what are the comparative advantages of Bitcoin versus other forms of money? And I sort of listed the, the, the properties that have been known for a very long time, since the days of Aristotle. Aristotle wrote about, you know, what, what properties does money have? Things like fungibility. One piece of the money should be equivalent to any other. So gold is better than diamonds, for instance. Mm-hmm. It should be durable. Gold is better than wheat because wheat uh, sort of perishes over time. Um, It should be uh, scarce. Scarcity is probably the most important. You don't want to have your savings in something that is super abundant like sand because anyone can go to the beach and get a bunch of sand and then it's like, well, I don't want to keep my savings in something that's very easy to obtain. I want it to be hard Mm -hmm. to obtain. It should be easy to verify. You should be able to see the thing and quickly recognize that is the thing. It, it can't be counterfeited easily because if you can counterfeit it easily, then the supply is actually much larger than the real supply that you, you want to deal with. And established history is another one. Something that's been used for money or valued as money for a long time is generally going to be thought of more highly than something that just came along recently. So that's an, an, an advantage for incumbents. So, you know, I, I went through the properties that make for uh, a good store of value. And then I sort of traced the history and the origins of money and how money came about. And I talk about things like the double coincidence of wants, which Austrians are generally familiar with, you know, Karl Menger's theory about how money comes about. Uh, and later in the article, I talk about the evolution of money, which I think is probably one of the more heterodox things that I talk about that Austrians don't really talk about, which is money evolving through stages. It doesn't immediately become a medium of exchange. It's sort of first a curiosity or a collectible, something that people see and say, oh, that's cool. I just want to have it because it's cool. So you imagine 
early man in primitive societies coming across gold on the ground and saying, oh, it's shiny and cool. It does, doesn't do anything. It's not useful. Mm. I can't eat it, but it's, I have it and no one else has it. And so it's, it starts off as a collectible. And then when enough people value it in that sense, it becomes slowly but surely a store of value because you see, well, if I keep this and other people value it, I can use it to keep some of my savings in and other people will take it from me uh, and give me something in return. And once enough people value the thing, then it becomes suitable as a medium of exchange because you can start saying, well, it's really hard for me to complete my trade with this apple grower. I have, I'm a fisherman and they don't want fish, but they do want this other thing, uh, which is um, widely valued, which is gold or you know something like that that was used as money. And then finally, after it's widely used as a medium of exchange, it becomes uh, what I call a unit of account, which is things become priced in terms of that thing. So Mm -hmm. if you think about gold during the 19th century, when gold was money, if you went to the grocery store, there'd probably be some price in terms of the amount of gold that 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 thing cost. Uh, So I, I sort of talk about that and I say, you know, there's a big debate about Bitcoin, like, is it a me? It doesn't look like a medium of exchange. It's just something that goes up and down in value. And what I was arguing is that actually it's going through this evolution. It's at the earliest stage of that evolution, but it's becoming money over time. And I sort of lay out the case for why that is. One last point before I sort of give it back to you and let you ask some questions is I thought there was a big hole in the Austrian theory. This is another example where I sort of thought about a commonly held Austrian theory. And I thought no one's addressed this hole. And that is... The, the, the story of the origins of money that most Austrians give goes something like this. People uh, live in a state of barter and they're, they're bartering with each other and they're trading fish for apples and sheep for uh, chickens or whatever like they're doing. And, and because it's hard to trade this way because the person you're trading with may not always want what you have or they may not want it at the particular time, you look for something that's more marketable. You look for the thing that's more widely demanded so that you can complete trades. And so you try and keep that more marketable thing in reserve, in your savings to complete trades in the future. And so slowly over time, something becomes more and more marketable and eventually it becomes money. I mean, that's a, that's a very brief summary, but that's essentially the, the, the Mengarian account for the origin of the money. One thing I thought about with this is that is, as something is becoming widely adopted for use as a medium of exchange, if it's limited in supply, its purchasing power is going to skyrocket because as more and more people are holding it in reserve, the demand for it is increasing and its purchasing power must increase. And if its purchasing power is going to increase, people are going to recognize that and speculate on it. And you're going to have, you're going to have speculators coming in saying, whoa, the, the price of gold is going up. I'm going to bet that it's going to go up even more in the future. And that actually hastens the process of it becoming Mm -hmm. a medium of exchange because it sort of makes the thing more valuable and more widely desired and, and, and used. And this is exactly what I thought was happening with Bitcoin. And I thought, you know, Bitcoin was so fascinating because it's like a case study in the monetization of an economic good in real time. And we've never seen this before. The monetization of gold took millennia to happen, you know, from it being a a rock that 
primitive man picked up and thought was cool and shiny to the 19th century uh, when the world was under a, a gold standard. That process took many, many millennia to happen, that process of monetization. But the process of monetization of Bitcoin, we live in a digital world, is happening much more rapidly. And I felt like it was the first time we have a case study where we can look at this and say, well, are our theories correct? What what is happening that we may not have accounted for? And I felt like this was one of those cases where the Austrians never talk about Mises and Menga never talk about when something is being monetized and becoming a medium of exchange, its purchasing power must increase if it's a fixed supply or limited supply good. And they never talk about the fact that if it's increasing, someone is going to bet on that. Someone is going to speculate in that market. And that's exactly what's happening in the Bitcoin market. You see people recognizing, hey, this, this could be a better money. And if it's a better money, I probably want to have some of it because it's going to increase in purchasing power. If this eventually becomes global money, then I should have some. I should have at least a few Bitcoin. And that recognition that something could be superior money and could displace a current money is really all you need to explain the initial price. That that was one of the things that Austrians really got caught up on is, well, money has to start off as a commodity. If you look at Rothbard's writing, he's very explicit on this. Nothing can be money unless it was first a useful commodity. It was used for some other purpose other than money. Mises actually doesn't go this far. This was kind of Rothbard's interpretation of Mises's regression theorem. And I think this is one of the areas where, despite being a fan of Rothbard, I think he was very wrong on this, um, this very strict interpretation that for something to be money, it has to have started off, started off as something that's used for jewellery or, uh, I don't know, used for um, I don't know, digging up the ground or whatever it is. I, I think that's incorrect. I think the initial price can be explained by just the recognition that the good in question is superior to its competitors and could displace its competitors in the future. And then you have someone say, oh, I want to hold it. That's that's cool. I want to hold that. And that's exactly what happened with Bitcoin. Okay, great. So yeah, a lot there. And by the way, VJ, um, unfortunately, I got to get going in like 10 minutes here. Um, so one quick thing on that is I actually think it is in Mises too. Like, I don't remember the exact line, but he says something like, the idea of a medium of exchange that did not first have a history as a regular commodity is unthinkable. You know, <laughs> he speaks in very sweeping. So I agree Rothbard probably spelled it out more clearly just because Rothbard does. And, you know, he's a, Rothbard may have stuck his neck out more on whatever the thing was, but that is in Mises. And, and what I've been saying to people who listen to my stuff on Bitcoin is I try to be agnostic and say, for sure, I think that if you think the regression theorem means Bitcoin can ever become money, well, it, it should have already it should have already hit. In other words, you should also think Bitcoin couldn't ever be just a medium of exchange. And, and it, it is in the, in the sense of, it's not widely accepted, but it, some people accept Bitcoins not because they're going to eat it or you know use it in a factory to make something with it, but because they're going to trade it away in the future. That's what a medium of exchange is in the Austrian camp. And that should have been impossible too, because like you say, that the argument from Mises and Rothbard was, how would you know how much to give up for? How would you know what a good price was for it was if it wasn't just in regular barter transactions and you had a history to be able to look at it? And so, and yeah, the way I think, BJ, it, it got off the ground. Bitcoin is in the beginning, it was almost free. Like in other words, you know, whoever gave up a couple pizzas to get 10,000 or whatever they were, 
Like, what's the big deal? Whereas, you know, Mises, well, how would you know? How did you know it was, they were worth two pizzas and you could just, because it's a cool thing and it might take off. And yeah, I'm willing to give up two pizzas just in case. Yeah, the initial like, price yeah. is to me the least interesting or important thing because it's, it could happen anyway. It could just happen from a random person being like, I don't care. I just, I, I want it. I value it right. because of so and sake. But I, I do want to say one quick thing. The thing that I think is really um, a big issue in economics is the obsession with money being defined as a medium of exchange. Economists always focus on the medium of exchange role of money. And I think this is a huge problem because I think the medium of exchange role of money is just one of the roles of money. And I actually think it's the least important of the roles of money. Mm -hmm. And the problem is if you define something as one of its roles or as one of its attributes, it's kind of like defining a car as a, like a steering wheel. It's, it's not a steering wheel is something a car has, but it's not, not the car itself. And I think when you choose definitions and Mises makes this point, I think in human action, the definitions you should you choose should be for improving your understanding of economic phenomena. You shouldn't, mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't choose definitions which hurt your ability to understand the world around you. And I feel like this is really a case where by defining money as a medium of exchange, people got very confused with Bitcoin. Like, oh, it doesn't seem to be used, at least in the early days, as a medium of exchange. So, so what is it? Is it money? If you think of money not as a medium of exchanges, but as an economic good which has certain properties and the medium exchange role is one of them, then I think it really makes a lot of things much easier to understand. And if you recognize that money can also be used as a store of value, that is people hold it in reserve Mm -hmm. as, as a vehicle in which they want to keep savings in because they believe the purchasing power will be maintained into the future, then things become a lot clearer. And I think there's so many different ways you could define money that could, you know, enlighten the discussion more. And I'll give you an example of one one way you could think about money is money is a ledger of purchasing power in the economy. It's just a record of who has how much purchasing power. And that could be done on a spreadsheet. Like they say, Bob, you know, have a big Excel spreadsheet with an entry for Bob, an entry for VJ, and Bob's entry has like, you know, $10,000 and I have like $5,000. And in the abstract, you can think of like the gold standard as essentially that. It, it's not an Excel spreadsheet, but the, the the value for the Excel spreadsheet is just the amount of gold that you have in your hand. And the amount of gold that you have in your hand is a measure of the purchasing power you have in the economy, the ability to do things in the economy uh, because you have something that can buy stuff in the economy. You have a liquid good, uh, which is money. So that's another way of thinking about money, another definition you could use of money. And I just, I feel like it's incredibly problematic that people have stuck with this definition of money is a generally accepted medium of exchange. I don't think it helps the understanding of monetary phenomena. I think it confuses understanding. And and it's it's something I point out in my article, and it's a big beef I have both with, you know, the regular economics profession and also Austrians as well. And there's so many different interpretations Mm -hmm. of what money is from different Austrians. Like Mises calls it a generally accepted medium of exchange. I think Hopper calls it a universally accepted medium of exchange. But then is the dollar money? Because it's not universally accepted. It's it's accepted in the US. And what, what about places where, you know, multiple monies are competing with each other or can be used at the same time, does that mean neither of them's money? So I I think we need to sort of go back and look at the definitions we choose when we're 
understanding monetary phenomena. And it's absolutely certain that Bitcoin is a monetary phenomenon. So we need to be careful about how we think about it and what tools we apply when we understand. Otherwise, we can go down all sorts of blind alleys. And I think there were several years when uh, many of the Austrians who looked at it went down blind alleys and said, well, this clearly can't be money because it doesn't follow the definition of money. It doesn't seem to arise in the way we think money arises. And my view is that this is one of those areas where you need to go back and go back to first principles and say, okay, I believe the Austrian methodology, but this is something new that I don't understand, I haven't seen, and I and I want to try and understand it from first principles. And I really hope that you know any of the Austrians listening to your show will take a second look at Bitcoin because I really do believe this is the most important uh, innovation to money in, in forever. <laughs> there hasn't been anything as profound as this mm-hmm. uh, since maybe, I don't know, the minting of coins. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so, and I definitely agree. It is a fascinating case study, especially because we have, you know, everything at our fingertips. You know, we can literally have the ledger of how it was traded and whatnot. So, as opposed to gold, I mean, yeah, we can speculate and talk about stories, and 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 you know, we don't actually have the record of the ancient guy who stumbled across gold and said, "Oh, this is kind of cool." You know, I believe that probably is what happened, but we technically don't know. And so, whereas we know exactly what happened with you know the bitcoins as they got mined into existence and then got traded. Last thing, and I, I wish I could have you along. Maybe we'll, I'll have you back on in the near future. Can you tell us a little bit, because there is a sort of paradox involved or a tension that you're mentioning. Oh, in the beginning, and this is something in the Austrian story of you know, how, how does a regular commodity turn into, you know, first a medium of exchange and then it's widely accepted so it becomes a money. Is that you're saying that as it becomes more marketable or saleable in Menger's term, the, its purchasing power would go up and that makes more people want to hold it for that reason but it's interesting because when we see this with Bitcoin, a lot of people are pointing out like, well, wait a minute, if, if we're just going to hold forever, how would it ever become the day-to-day money, mm. right? And so do, can you just speak a little, and again, we're a little bit tight on time here, but can you just give your thoughts on like, is, it, is there going to be a transition phase where at the beginning, everyone's just holding it as a speculative asset, but then once it kind of levels off, then they start feeling free to spend it as it were? Yeah, that's a great question. And the Bitcoin's increase in purchasing power is completely determined by the flow of savings into Bitcoin. That is people holding savings in Bitcoin rather than in gold or stocks or dollars or whatever. And that flow of savings will eventually stop. When it's Right now, it's largely um, sort of dictated by people who don't own any Bitcoin saying, hey, this is, this is a good place to store my wealth. And if I'm, say, a wealthy person in China who wants to escape, I'm going to keep my wealth in Bitcoin because it's much easier to escape. As that flow of savings into Bitcoin slows, and it has to slow eventually, then its purchasing power will plateau. And once gold's purchasing pl- power plateaus, it'll become much more suitable as a medium of exchange. And if you look at the market capitalization of gold, it's $10 trillion. The market capitalization of Bitcoin is $1 trillion. It's only a tenth of the size of gold. Gold has actually much lower volatility than Bitcoin. And my belief is that once Bitcoin achieves the same market capitalization of as gold, its purchasing power will slow, slowly sort of plateau. I mean, not completely because mm. gold hasn't sucked in all the world's savings either. There's still a lot of savings in other vehicles like government bonds and stocks, and but it, it will be much less volatile. I think Bitcoin is, is a trillion dollar asset right now. I think it could easily be a hundred trillion dollar asset. I think it's far superior to gold. Uh, it, it has all the properties that make gold good as a store of value, but it has properties that make it far superior to gold. 
to store. It's much cheaper to store. It's much easier to transmit. It's much easier to verify than gold. So given these properties, I think Bitcoin is going to suck in a lot of the world's savings. And once it has sucked in a substantial amount, and let's say 90 or 80% of the population of the world has some Bitcoin, its purchasing power will be much, much less volatile than it is now. Okay, well, great. That's a great note to end on. Uh, folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 200 to get all the links here. My guest has been Vijay Boyapati. Vijay, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com. <laughs>